0: but i will bring judgment on the nation which they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions as for yourself you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in four generations for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Well, good morning, everybody. This is a special weekend, not just because of Fourth of July. It's a really special weekend for us because we had our second baby yesterday morning. (laughs) So... Yeah, we, we left here about 5 o'clock yesterday morning. We had the baby at 8.30, so it was really fast. I was like, are you sure you don't want me to go to McAllister? But no, we went to Tulsa instead, and we made it. So we've got a couple of pictures I think Joseph's going to put up on the screen. So there we are. Laura was such a superstar. It was great, easy. We're so thankful um, to God. And that's our baby, Lila Margaret Fakes. And there she, there she is. She's. Uh, if you've met Davy, our first daughter, she looks more like a fakes. She's got that dark hair. She kind of got the beard coming in. I think. I'm hoping that goes away before junior high. Um, but we are so grateful, and to all of you all who have prayed for us and all the things that you have done, Kerwin. This is a loving, praying church, and I cannot wait later today to come home and bring our baby home into this community. I mean, there is no place I would rather be raising a family, the people that know and love us, the people that support us, and that we get to serve alongside. It's just, there's nothing like it in the world, and so thank you guys. Thanks to everybody who reached out, who's prayed for us. It's just been an amazing couple of days. In fact, you know I came from the hospital because I still have my baby bracelet on. Um, I couldn't pass up a night on that extendable couch last night, so I drove in this morning, partially because this is like a no re-entry I was worried that I'd have to pay again if I took this off. So and I don't want to do that. So anyway, I'm going back this afternoon, so I'm going to keep this on for the time being. So thank you again to everybody. And uh, this morning, speaking of waiting for a child, we're talking about Abraham and we're in the middle of Abraham's story in Genesis. And if if this is your first week here, welcome. We want, you know, anytime we even do a series, we want it to be you can come and just get something out of this, but I want to tell you a little bit of background on this. Abram, out of nowhere, gets a call from God. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, after creation has gone from bad to worse, people are getting more and more sinful. In fact, they're inventing ways to be more sinful. God speaks to an idol worshiper named Abram. And he tells him to get up and leave his home and leave his old life and leave his idols behind and come to a place that God would tell him in, a, in, in, in the future to go. And we talked last week about the fact that that is real faith. That God doesn't say, hey, trust me and I will take you here. He says, trust me. And it says that so Abram went. That's, that is true faith. God calls, so you act. And the dichotomy I want you to see this morning is Abram is a person, he's a real life person. And sometimes we read these Genesis stories like this is a storybook and just perfect Bible people, you know, nothing like us. But, but I want you to know this morning, what we get to see in chapter 15 is even though Abraham is going to be known as the father of faith, I mean, think about this. He's, we talked last week, he's like the hero of every young Jewish kid because he is faithful and he is the person it says in verse 6 when God calls to him he believes God and God counts that I love that that Nancy read from the KJV I think because it says he reckoned it to him counted it in an accounting sense like you had lived a righteous life like a perfect life because he believed God but then all of a sudden you see the really human part of Abraham come out he believes God he is the exemplar of faith, he is following God, and he's got some doubts. Because in chapter 15, God comes to him again. And when you're reading these narratives, it's like, man, God is just speaking to Abraham all the time. If I was like that, then I would do all kinds of things. But, but you've got to know that in between these chapters, it's been 10 years since God spoke to Abraham. And he's been following as he knows how and Part of the blessing has come in, but he doesn't have a son, he doesn't have a lineage, he doesn't have a nation, he doesn't have the promise that God has offered. And so when God comes to him again after 10 years, he says, but, but how will I know? How can I really trust? I, I believe, but I've, I've got some doubts. And this morning what we get to see is how God meets Abraham when his faith and his doubts are mingled together. And it's probably a situation you've found yourself in. If you're trying to follow God, if you have become a Christian and you're trying to walk by the Spirit, chances are you've been in a situation where you feel both of those things going on at one time, faith and doubt. I I believe, but if you could just give me a little proof or, or, or a little vision of the future. In fact, what I think is really going on with Abram here is he's experienced what most of us have experienced where you see all the things that God has promised and they haven't come true yet in your life and you feel like I'm really kind of getting an imitation of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Or I'm really getting kind of a second best version of what I expected God to give me. or In my life so far, this isn't living up to all that I thought it was going to be. When Laura and I were dating... She was working the night shift at the hospital, and so we would do a lot of our dates in the afternoon. So we'd go out in the afternoon, and then if she wasn't napping, we'd go to dinner early, and she would go work her shift at the hospital. And I really wanted to do something special for her. I wanted us to have like a really cool date. So I was looking around what was going on in Kansas City, which is where we were both living at the time, and I saw that there was a production of The Hobbit, by J.R.R. Tolkien downtown in Kansas City, I was like, "Oh, I love this!" We both are big Lord of the Rings, uh, Hobbit fans. By that I mean I was, and so <laughs> we, I'm like, "This is going to be so fun!" And so we get all dressed up in nice clothes. We're going downtown for this performance, and then we're going to go to a nice dinner afterwards. And we sit down in the performance, and as the everything goes dark and the stage clears and the curtains open. All of a sudden, if you've read The Hobbit, the beginning is called An Unexpected Party. And all the hobbits come together with the dwarves. And when they came out, they were all kids. And I thought, this is like really a cool touch in this play that they got kids to be the hobbits. I'm like, that is so cool. And then as more characters enter, I realize they're all kids. (laughs) In fact, every one of these actors is like eight years old. And Gandalf comes on, he's like 55, and he's telling them their lines when they're forgetting. I'm like, what is this? And it it starts to make sense when I look around and I see all these parents with other kids. And what what I should have realized was when we walked in and there was the line of lunchboxes outside against the wall, I should have known this was a drama camp production of The Hobbit which was really awkward after the performance, because when we stood up, they were like, well, which one was your kid? We're, we're, we just love culture, okay? We, we, just, we just love art, and we appreciate the finer things. We don't have a kid in this production. And it, it was good, I'll say. It was, it was okay. The acting was a little second rate. But... Um, we got to dinner afterwards, and it was funny because it was enjoyable, and it was funny all of its own, but we were kind of like, I actually was really hoping to see something really good, and I thought this was going to be a really cool event. Now, it was cheap. I'll give you that. It was cheap, but, but my expectations were so high for it because I thought this is going to be a special thing. It's going to be a memory that we'll have, and it certainly was, and we're sitting there at dinner being like, but, but, but it was just falling short of the real thing. What we had wanted and then what we had had experienced, there was a huge gap in between. It, It wasn't at all where we thought we would be when we set out with our tickets to the performance. And I tell you that because I want you, if you have an experience like that, I want you to get into that mindset so you can understand what's going on with Abraham in this story. There's a depth of disappointment in the Christian life. When things don't pan out like you thought they were going to. When you don't think that God is really upholding his side of the bargain. When you don't really feel like everything you expected when you gave your life to Christ is really coming true in your life. And if you can get yourself into that place, then you can appreciate what God does to meet Abraham in that moment. See, some of our tendency is, is when we're doubting or when we're disappointed, God will provide answers. That's what God should do. That's what you should do in a human sense, is I'm wondering about this, I'm insecure about this, I'm hoping for this, I'm longing for it. If you could just give me some data, then that would satisfy me. But what you'll notice in this passage, as Nancy read it, is that's not what God does. In fact, he, get, he gives him some specific promises at the end, but what God does is he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, covenant is, is a churchy word. It's one of those words you don't really use anywhere else other than church. And so I want to talk for a minute about what is a covenant? You know, what, what, what is God doing in this story? Well, a covenant is really the key to this whole thing. In the midst of Abraham's doubts and disappointments, God gives Abraham himself, and that's sufficient. God draws near to Abraham and actually gives him himself. And so a, a covenant is something in the ancient world that was the most serious, solemn oath that you could make with somebody. It's, sometimes we talk about covenants like contracts, but there's actually a really big difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is when you sign something or you make an agreement between people that protects both of you against the other. So it, it protects your interests against another person. It has something that you'll do, but it also has something that will happen if they don't do that. And basically, a contract is something where you sign something because of some distrust. There's implicit distrust in every contract against another party. Whether you like them or not, that's just the nature of what you do in an agreement like that. So a a contract is actually an expression of your own interests. It's an expression of your Uh, distrust maybe. It's at least an expression of wanting your own protection. A covenant is the exact opposite. A covenant is where you entrust yourself to someone else because you trust them, because you love them. In fact, what a covenant binds you to is to lay your life down for someone else. So instead of saying now we are mutually secured in our interests, what a covenant says is we are now mutually bound in our interests together. And this was common in the ancient world. In fact, we, we have a couple of covenants that are extant in inscriptions. And uh, one of them is a 17th century BC covenant between two parties named Yarimlim and Aban, which was a close second for us, for Lila. But Yerimlim and Aben were two kings, and they had, they had basically gone to war, and one had given a city to the other one. And in this inscription, after they had made the covenant, what one of the kings said to the other is, if I go back on what I have done, then I will die as a consequence. And this is interesting because if you read the story in Genesis 15, Abraham knows what to do when God says, I want you to bring me these animals. So if you look closely, what happens is God tells him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And it's amazing. We just skip over this. Abraham knows exactly what to do with this petting zoo that he now has accumulated. He he takes them He cuts the animals in half from nose to tail, and he finds a valley, a natural ravine, and he lays one half of each animal on each side, and the blood runs down into the bottom of the valley. This is the way you would make a covenant in the ancient world. Abraham knew it. These two parties knew it. And what would happen was you would lay them down, and as the blood ran down to the bottom, one of the parties would walk through. Sometimes both parties would walk through, and it was as if you were saying, Do this to me if I go back on my side of the covenant. And when they would walk through and the blood would splatter up on their robes, it was as if they were saying, like this covenant, I will die. My life is forfeit if I don't uphold my side of the covenant. So God draws near to Abram and he makes a covenant with him. And the first thing I want you to see about this is that the covenant shows the depth of God's love for Abraham. See, what, what kind of God is it that enters into a covenant with a human being? What, in, in the ancient world, what you see is you usually have a lord and a vassal. And when they make this kind of covenant, most of the time, the vassal, the, the less powerful person, is the one who will walk through the blood. Because what's happening is the Lord is condescending to make this agreement with the vassals; It's beneath them to spell out the consequences. And in all of these covenants in the ancient world, you either have the less powerful person or both go through. But what you never, ever have is the more powerful person going through on their own. Never in the ancient world outside of this text Do you ever see the Lord stoop down to the level of walking through the blood on his own? See, this this is God's great love for Abram that he enters into a covenant where he says, I will give myself to you. I, I actually will draw near and bind you up and it's like God ties the two of them together but the knots are on God's side. He's the one who tied it. He's the one who keeps it. He's the one who sealed it, and ultimately, he's the one who's going to pay it. See, when he walks through, what he's saying is, I'm not just making this covenant with you, but the fact that only God walks through, and we see that when a deep darkness falls on Abram in a dreadful sleep, and, and all of a sudden, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass through the pieces. God is saying, if this covenant is broken by me or by you. I'm the one who's going to pay. I'm going to pay with the shedding of blood if this covenant is broken. What kind of God would do that? It would have to be a tremendously loving God to put himself on the line for his creation. In fact, I I need you to see God's love in this so that you can see how much it costs God to keep this covenant in place. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon called Heaven is a World of Love, says God and his love are like the sun and its light. The sun doesn't just decide every now and then to shine light, and then when it's not feeling like it, it doesn't shine any light anymore. The sun and light are coterminous. It, it is light. It does radiate Light And it doesn't stop, It regardless of whether you're looking at it or not, or if you're in the shade or not, or if you're on the other side of the world or not, what the sun does is radiate light. And John tells us what God does is radiate his love. In fact, because God is Trinitarian, he has been a God of love for all eternity past and will be a God of love for all eternity future, regardless of whether you or I had ever been born. And in fact, before we ever loved God, the Bible says, he loved us. It wasn't that Abraham deserved to be in this covenant with God. You know, three chapters earlier, God calls Abram when he is an idol worshiper. He's he's not going to church. He's not near God. He doesn't have anything about him that, that would make God love him except when he calls, Abram responds. And God makes a covenant with him. God's love is like the sun in its light because God, in his nature, radiates love for his creation. But the second thing about this covenant I want you to see is it's not just showing God's great love for his creation. It's also showing God's great justice in the world. So sometimes what we do is we take love and justice and we pit them against each other. And so, like the ideal in your life is to know when to be loving and when to be just. You know, when to have love for somebody and mercy and then when to have like tough love or when to get really just. And, and our life is kind of a balance between these two forces. But, but in God, actually, there is no difference between his love and his justice. They, they are the same. And what you'll see in this story with Abram and what plays out for the rest of the Bible is one long story of God's loving justice, making the world right again. And what God does in this story is he he makes a covenant with Abram, and, and covenants always have stipulations that are attached to them, right? So the covenant is, I will give myself to you, and as we do that, these things will happen. And the easiest way to see this is not just in this covenant, but in another covenant that God makes with Moses. When The people of Israel come out of Egypt, just like this text predicts that they would. He takes them to Mount Sinai, and God gives them a new covenant. And the new covenant is summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? These are the stipulations of the covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any graven images. You shall not murder. You shall not lie. All of those things are stipulations of the covenant. God's saying, to stay in covenant with each other, I will be your God. I will bless you. I will give you the land. I'll do everything I said for Abraham. You Worship me as a holy God by being holy people. You follow these stipulations of the covenant. Well, you know what happens. Israel doesn't keep the covenant. Abraham doesn't even keep the covenant. We're going to find out in a couple of weeks. Abraham's family, they're like the greatest violators of this covenant. There You could hardly find a more dysfunctional family in Scripture than Abraham and his kids and their kids and their kids. I mean, if this were a soap opera called One Man's Family... It would be a Netflix, I mean, most viewed show ever. There's everything you would want. Intrigue, backstabbing, all kinds of love triangles. I mean, everything you could want in this family. And they are the covenant people of God. Throughout Israel, they break the covenant. They worship foreign gods. They don't obey God's commandments. They go into slavery in Egypt. They forget about the Lord. And all through the kings of Israel, they are breaking this covenant. But God institutes something because of that. At the covenant with Moses, they have just come out of Egypt, and there God created what was called the Passover. Because just like this covenant, what, what he had Israel do was make a sacrifice that would be a stand-in for the sins of Israel until the full payment was made. Right, This is like Israel just paying off interest on the debt, but they're never dipping into the principal. And every year they would celebrate the Passover, which which was a reflection of what God did in Egypt, where all the lives of the firstborn were forfeit to the Lord because this covenant had been broken. But he allowed them to take a Passover lamb and take the blood and put it on their doorpost. And if that was on their doorpost, it was like a stand-in that there has been a sacrifice to stay the wrath of God for breaking this covenant. Our lives are forfeit. But because of this stand-in sacrifice, the wrath is pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. When we get to the New Testament, which is interesting, this story that we're looking at today, Abraham, is about 2,000 years before Jesus. And we, standing at 2,000 years after Jesus, look back to the time of Jesus the way they would have looked back to the time of Abraham. This covenant is that long. And when Jesus came, what they were doing at the temple was... When it came to be Passover time, the week before Passover, Passover's on a Saturday, and they would eat the meal the night before, and the week before, on Sunday, they would all come into Jerusalem, and there were certain fields in between Jerusalem and Bethlehem where they would raise the lambs for the Passover sacrifice. In fact, Bethlehem, if you go there today, you'll see Bethlehem is really like a suburb, what we would call a suburb of Jerusalem. It's only a couple of miles away. And the land in between was for raising the Passover lambs. And every year they would drive these lambs into Jerusalem, into the temple, and on the Sunday before the Passover ceremonies, they would come in and it was called Lamb Selection Sunday. They didn't call it Sunday then, but it was Lamb Selection Day. So they would come in, they would inspect a perfect lamb, they would buy it so that they could make the sacrifice and eat the meal together at the Passover. Well, as you know, in the Gospels, on the Sunday before Passover, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And all the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And there must have been words echoing in their minds when John the Baptist had said earlier, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that week, as Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples, he says, I'm going to give myself as a sacrifice. And he goes to the cross, and he hangs on the cross, and at the end, he yells out, it is finished. And and we read that passage like, the crucifixion is finished. His life is finished. His suffering is finished. His agony is finished. But the the Jews standing around that had been listening to Jesus' teaching, they would have known that Jesus isn't talking about any of those things. He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. And when the deep and dreadful darkness fell across the face of the earth as the Son of Man hung on a cross, and he yelled, it is finished, it would have taken their minds back to Abraham's covenant with God, and they would have realized God has paid the debt of the covenant. Every sin that had been committed, every time that a sacrifice was made in lieu of death, what God was doing was he was waiting until one day a perfect, holy sacrifice. Somebody who could represent God fully and somebody who could represent man fully would come and offer his perfect life as a sacrifice that would pay the debt. 2,000 years later and 2,000 years into the future, his sacrifice means that if you are in him, if you have been passed over because of his blood, you are now an heir of the covenant with Abraham. And if you are a child of God, in the New Testament they call it children of Abraham, if you are a child of God, that means that the covenant blessings apply to you because the covenant penalty has been paid by somebody else. That God came down, and paid the debt himself for you. God's perfect justice and his perfect love met at the cross where Jesus died so that God could say the covenant has been honored. But there's one more thing I want you to see about this covenant. The covenant also shows God's plan for Abraham and for his descendants. So at the end of this, and I spared Nancy this because in the last part of this, they get into all these names. You've got the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites and all of these people. God gets tremendously specific with Abraham on what to expect in the future. And if you go to the book of Joshua, which the second half of Joshua, I'm on the record for this before and I'll say it again, is the most boring part of the Bible. Everybody's like, oh, Leviticus is so boring. Le- no, Leviticus is Lord of the Rings compared to the end of Joshua. It, it, it is 12 chapters of painstaking land descriptions. And it's like, it runs by the river here, and it's by this guy's farm, and you know that bent tree, okay, it goes past there. And it is lining out all of these land promises. And it is totally and completely boring until... You get to the very end, and there's a line in there that says, and this was done to show that not a single word of what God promised didn't come true. Every word of it, every acre of it, every square foot of what God had promised came true. God gets specific here with Abram about this land, and he fulfills that through his people so that you can know that if you're in this covenant Every promise of God that has not come true yet in your life is going to come true. See, God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his covenant people over and over and over and over again so that you and I can believe things like when we die and we stand before his great throne and everything we've ever done is read out, we truly will be forgiven if we are in Christ. He's he's laid out his specific promises, and he has brought them to come to pass so many times so that you can know he will never leave you or forsake you. It's in his character. It's in his covenant love for you. When Jesus is preparing for the Passover with his disciples, the last thing that he does as they're sitting there at the table together at the Last Supper is they're doing a Passover meal. They're, they're doing the Passover, and the Passover, if you came to our Maundy Thursday service this year, you'll remember this. The Passover, curiously enough, they had done this same thing, and you can go to a Passover Seder today, well, they'll do the same thing that people did thousands of years ago. The Passover meal starts with a scripture reading, but it doesn't start with a scripture reading about the Exodus. It starts with a scripture reading about Abraham, and it says, our father Abraham was an idol worshiper who God called to follow him. That's where the Passover meal begins. So Jesus and his disciples would have read that passage. They would have gone through the traditional Passover Seder that they had done dozens of times. And then they got to the end. And the Bible tells us that when they got to the end, Jesus did something radically different than what you do at the Passover meal. At the end of the Passover meal, you take the fourth cup and you say a blessing to end the meal. And Jesus takes the cup And when he does that, he actually does something different. It says, he offers it to his disciples and says, this is a new covenant in my blood. The disciples would have been stunned because this is not what you do at the end of the Passover. This is actually what you do at a wedding. They would have known that when a son meets the woman that he wants to marry, he and his father go to the woman and her father and they work out a price. And as they talk about it and they get to the end and the proposal is made, the son takes a cup of wine and he offers it to his future wife. And she has one of two options. She can take the cup and drink it and accept his offer and say, you've given your life for me, I will give my life to you. Or she can let the cup pass and refuse his offer. And... If she takes the cup, then the dad and his son go back to their house and they begin to build a room for the future bride to come to. This is why Jesus at the Last Supper in John 14 through 16 says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house so that where I am, you can come and be with me. And he gives his disciples the cup. It's it's like he's saying, I'm laying down my life for you. I'm giving my life to you in this covenant Will you take the cup and give your life back to me? And if you do, I'm going to my Father. And someday I'm coming back and I'm taking you and you will come to live with me in my Father's house forever. See, Jesus was making a new covenant with his disciples saying, my life for yours. My life for yours. And if you take it, I will be with you. I will build a place for you. I will bring you to be with me. That's why Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That he died for us. We give our lives for him, and he is coming back for us. So this covenant with Abraham shows us the plan that would be enacted through a perfect Savior who gave his life for you, and now at his table offers you a cup. We're gonna celebrate communion this morning. We do this every week because what we do in communion is we come and we take the bread, which is the body of Christ. It's our nourishment. It, it is our, it's our it's the way that we live is by him, by his word, by his spirit. But then we're also presented with a cup. And every time you're presented with a cup, it's as, it's as if Jesus is asking all over again, do you take this cup? Will you give your life To me? Will you bind yourself in this covenant with me? And every time you have a chance to take the cup, to be with Christ, to remember his death, to proclaim that he's coming for you again, or you can let the cup pass. But like Abraham, this covenant that we are in, we are heirs of those promises because of the great love of God, the justice of God, the plan of God that all come together in his Son Jesus. In a moment, we're going to have people come forward and what we do is you'll stand and come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and take that and remember the Lord's death until he comes for you in the end. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you that each week we can do this in remembrance of you. We can do this knowing that Because you paid the penalty, we can receive all that you promised to Abraham. That in our faith and in our doubts, in the midst of our sin and forgiveness, Lord, you draw near to us. You have made a covenant with us through your son. Father, as we take communion together this morning, would you remind us of your great love for us? Would you remind us what it cost for you to pay for us? Father, would you fill our hearts with joy as we leave here today, knowing that we have a covenant-keeping God who is with us always until the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.